this yes. is hell. Okie doke. The kind of stuff that starts fights at the dinner table. This is hell. And if you have a vegetarian friend or family member that you do have dinner with on a regular basis, any fallout from mentioning the conversation we are about to have, well, that's on you. Don't blame us if what we're talking about today causes some kind of argument at the dinner table. We are officially warning you that it might. So it's not our fault if you make everybody at the table feel uncomfortable. With that said, today's show is about vegetarianism. Kinda. It's about a lot more than not eating meat. But eating meat is at the heart of the story. Hinduism reveres the cow. But it wasn't always like that. In fact, today's guest argues that reverence for the cow is based on a myth. The problem with that myth, as is often the case with myths, is it has been weaponized. And in this case, within the nationalism of Prime Minister Narendra Modi's BJP party. But that nationalism isn't just nationalism. It's Hindu. It's religious nationalism. And when that nationalism gets mixed up with religion, it can not only turn violent, but it can become deadly. There have been incidents of violent beatings while epithets like meat eaters or beef eaters are thrown at Muslims that have ended up as murders. The last several years have been an ugly time in India, but with Modi's and the BJP's loss over the weekend in local elections in the state of Karnataka, who knows? Maybe the tide is finally turning against fomenting religious hatred in India against Muslims. In a few minutes, we'll talk India and the politics of meat eating when we will be speaking with writer and editor Sharanya Deepak, who posted the Baffler magazine article, India's Beef with Beef, Vegetarianism as a Tool for Punishment and Surveillance. Who knew? She writes about food, language, conflict, and the commodification of culture. Her work has been published in Orion, Eater, Vittles, London, Popula, Atlas Obscura, Wasafiri, Long Reads, Roads and Kingdoms, 52, The Believer, and The Baffler, among others. She is an editor at Vittles, a food and culture publication based in London, and also an editor at Mongol Media, a collective of writers and artists from outside Western Europe and North America. In October 2020, she won the Wasafiri New Writing Prize for her essay, Seamless. In 2022-2023, she was also a fellow at One World Media and South Asia Speaks. She is currently working on a book of essays. You can find out more about Sharanya at sharanyadeepak.com and follow her on Twitter at sharanyadeepak. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, what's new by you? How was your weekend? Uh, weekend was great. Uh, my folks are visiting for the week uh, through tomorrow afternoon, so I've been eating too much and uh, <laughs> Going out drinking to too much. Yeah, um, you know they they don't often get down to the big city anymore, so uh, it's a 
you know, more way more options than the Northwoods have to offer. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, Northwoods does punch way above its weight in uh, pub-style pizza. Uh, it does, and uh, also in uh, fresh game meat. Fresh game meat and fresh fry. <laughs> yeah, hey, uh, where you go? did you go out to eat or order yeah. in? Uh, we went out to Kalo. Oh, uh, yeah. They're big Italian fans. That's and a good Italian restaurant. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's been around forever. Yeah. So that's, yeah, we've just been uh, eating and uh, hanging out. It sounds wonderful. It's that's what I'm great. hoping to be doing next weekend. And when they visit, I don't have to clean as hard as some other guests. So, you know. Oh, really? Yeah. So I they mean, forgive you? They forgive me a little that's bit. That's pretty I mean, good. I'm that's first, hot. I'm the firstborn, so. Yeah. So for the second week in a row, uh, my weekend started off great, but yet again took a turn for the worse. And this better not become a regular thing because it sucks. Last weekend started with me enjoying an art opening, and then I fell flat on my face almost sending me to the hospital, and this weekend began with me actually getting to relax in between weekends where we have family commitments, only to find out that an upcoming commitment is happening far sooner and for far longer than I thought, which led me to working all weekend instead of relaxing. So I finally get control over my work schedule so I could take a breath every so often from working. And the whole thing blew up in my face when I learned an upcoming event is not a three-day weekend getaway, but a five-day weekend vacation. Meaning for me to make take that much time off from working, I had to work all weekend, which sucked. And I'm starting to wonder if even during this short upcoming break, I'll be able to finally freaking chill. But more important than my inability to enjoy a weekend, Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, why is this hell? (laughs) Why is this hell? Thank you, Ronaldo. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us at This Is Hell uh, Radio. You can email it to chuck at thisishell.com. Our Facebook page is, again, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of the question from hell following a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. If your answer is our favorite, you will get your choice of This Is Hell stuff that is now available at thisishell.com when you click on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hang Hangover. This is hell, and Will has this week's two-page hangover cure. Last month, yet another horrible British media outlet posted an article suggesting hangover cures. That's not to say that U.S. media or other Western media outlets are adverse to running stories on hangover remedies. However, the cures offered in the British press are definitely better than those found elsewhere despite how awful the british news media is <laughs> like the only thing they're good at <laughs> <laughs> the sun ran a uh, story headlined booze you lose <laughs> from licorice to diy acupuncture 14 hangover cures that actually work by Brit- by london health news editor ella waller waller warns don't nap she then quotes hannah shore sleep expert at silent night the UK's leading betting brand, saying, day after a big night out, try not to nap unless essential. That's right. The sleep expert at the top UK bed brand is telling you not to nap when suffering from a hangover. Waller cites sleep expert Shore suggesting that if we are going to nap, 
We use the one, two, three rule. One nap before 2 p.m. for less than 30 minutes. Never heard that one before. Never heard that before. Uh, but instead of napping, Shore recommends, quote, access natural light throughout the day, like going for a walk, to stop the feeling of wanting a nap. Then prioritize sleep at night, ensuring you go to bed when you are tired to get back into that routine. That makes this week's hangover cure, do not nap. But if you do, take only one before two for less than 30 minutes. I don't believe that, that if you get into the sunlight, all of a sudden you don't feel like you want to take a nap. Ugh, sunlight's the worst when you're hungover. <laughs> a vampire. <laughs> it makes me state. want to run back into bed and pull the covers over my head as quickly as possible. Exactly. I don't know. So we have a scheduling note real quick. Uh, every week, the world broadcast premiere of This Is Hell happens on our home radio station, Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. Eight, uh, NUR has been uh, airing our show since 1996 every Saturday morning when they play all four hours of every week's shows. We also stream live every Monday through Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com and shortly after the live stream at the same place, thisishell.com. However, for the next two weeks, we will not be streaming live on Monday. That means no shows on Monday, May 22nd, or on M- Monday, Memorial Day, May 29th. That means that on NUR, we will also be playing an interview from our archives to fill the four-hour slot, as we will be doing on the UK internet radio outlet, Beware the Radio, where we also air. So we take off uh, Memorial Day every year as it is the unofficial beginning of summer here in the States, and we want everybody who works on the show to celebrate. But next Monday, the 22nd, we have off for a different reason. A year ago yesterday was my first show back from a series of surgeries that actually saved my life. Those surgeries kept me in bed for a solid month and were followed by another month of recuperation. It was a long and brutal recovery and boring, boring, boring. I could not wait to get back here in the studio to do the show. Relaxation sucks when it's mandatory in order for you to stay alive. However, relaxation is great when the first thing on your mind is whether you are going to die or not. (laughs) It's, It's And in celebration of me still not being dead, I am taking back-to-back long weekends, and instead of airing live shows the next two Mondays, we will be replaying our first two shows back after my life-saving surgeries. Next Monday, we will be playing our May 16th, 2022 show, featuring an interview with Alexander Zaitchik, author of Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine, from aspirin to COVID-19. Then on Memorial Day, May 29th, Monday, we will be replaying our May 25th, 2022 show with anthropologist Dominic Boyer, who wrote the Noema magazine article, Why We Have to Give Up on Endless Economic Growth. He was actually booked to be on the show when I was rushed to the hospital to have my surgery. So this week, it's our regular slate of three new live shows, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then the next two Mondays, we will be replaying my first two shows we aired after I returned from life-saving surgery a year ago, followed by all new shows on Tuesday and Wednesday with new Patreon podcasts on Thursdays. Thanks to everybody who showed their appreciation for This Is Hell while I was out last year. These past 12 months have been very, very difficult for me. I have one more final surgery next month to finish 
the entire process. I actually have a doctor's appointment today, immediately after the show, to start scheduling that surgery. And I'm looking forward to a couple of long weekends before I go under the knife one more time. Coming up in India, vegetarianism is nationalism. Will has some of your answers to this week's question from hell. We will tell you what happened during last week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Also, it's the past inside the present with historian Dr. Sebastian Vupper, who offers the historical context of the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present. Will, what's Seb talking about this week? Seb looks at what the Founding Fathers thought of religion and why this question is more difficult than it seems. Man, it's hard to find a deist church anymore, you know? It really is. You go all over the place. You go to the church district. There's nothing down there. No. You can kind of hit up the Unitarians there, mm-hmm. you know. Close they enough. They rhyme yeah. right, these days. <laughs> sure. If the world was perfect, it wouldn't be. This is hell and it's that goal of perfection that can so often lead to very imperfect outcomes. I mean, it makes sense to try to improve yourself. And what better way to start improving yourself than by changing your diet for the better? After all, we all know meat is not particularly good for us. And that vegetables are. So what better way to make yourself better than by becoming vegetarian? It's easy. The problem is that notion of purity that comes along with vegetarianism can come with a lot of baggage. Sometimes it's religious baggage. Here to help us understand another side of vegetarianism that we are far less familiar with here in the States, writer and editor Sharanya Deepak posted the Baffler magazine article, India's Beef with Beef, Vegetarianism as a Tool of Punishment and Surveillance. Welcome to This Is Hell, Sharanya. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. This is a fascinating article, and all of our listeners should check it out. Again, it's India's Beef with Beef. This is really an eye-opening, very enlightening article, and I truly appreciate it. You write that, you begin by writing that when Junaid Khan was a young boy, his mother, Saira Begum, uh, would return from home, uh, would return home close to nightfall. Uh, she would squat next to an open fire to cook roadies for her hungry son, who would smear them with butter. Uh, Syra would uh, told me one summer evening in 2019, like many women in her village, she's a farm laborer whose income, four thousand rupees per month in 2019, or 57 U.S. dollars, does not ensure food for her family at all times. She owns one buffalo, however, that she milks and uses to plow the land that she works. Food is scarce in her home, but the White butter she made with buffalo milk was delicious and filling for her children. I I think this might reveal something bigger about the food system within India. Food is scarce for a low-paid farm worker. She works in the production of food every day, but at home, there is a food shortage. What should that reveal to us about India's food system when farm workers and their families actually suffer from food shortages? Yeah, actually, um, I mean, you've. I'm. I'm glad it was so telling the the first paragraph of the of the article. But it is, um, you know, that is the biggest kind of like discrepancy within the food system in India. And India is known. South Asia is known for generosity and like familial kind of, you know, just coming together. That those are the narratives that are 
you know, told to everybody across the world. And sure, people are very generous and families do eat really well and eat together. But there is a huge um, dissonance between who the people that grow food have least access to it, especially if they're from um, marginalized caste backgrounds in Hinduism and in Islam. Um, they, you know, like, so so land ownership is really, is really, is really warped because most people that work land do not own it. So they're not able to control what they grow. They're not able to control what they eat. They oftentimes own so little that they can't buy market priced food. So it's all just kind of, there's just so many, so many layers of things going on. Um, and, you know, like right now I'm working on something about migrant uh, workers in Delhi and street street food vendors. Uh, a lot of street food vendors in Delhi happen to be from everywhere else. And they're always from kind of like agrarian economies that have fallen to ruin, have been industrialized and haven't provided for them where lands have essentially just become ravaged by either um, you know, British colonialism or like post-colonial Indian governments land grabbing or American seeds being peddled into into Indian lands and not being suited to there. So yeah, this is, I mean, it's it's the truth that um, most people that grow food in the country have the least access to it. And Saira is, um, she is from, she's, she's Indian Muslim and she's from like, an oppressed caste in Islam. And um, she's what we call a farming laborer. So she doesn't own the land that she works on. It's all, I don't actually know who owns it because she wouldn't tell me. And finding out in that part of the country is just a bit dodgy. Like I did good. If I went too much into it, you know, people would start getting angry and I wouldn't be able to talk to her. So, but it's definitely owned by a big industrial player. You know, someone, someone who like mass manufactures wheat um, is what my guess is. Um, so yeah, they don't have access to staples. They don't have access to um, vegetables. And therefore, animal protein becomes something that is crucial and that is healthy, you know. And um, for for populations and communities that have had access to meat for over generations, like Europeans, um, um, you know, people of European descent have been eating meat for a very long time. And therefore, like meat is considered something that is not healthy. And in America, it's manufactured industrially uh, from what I've told I've never been um, but from what I know uh, but like for people that essentially come from histories of malnourishment and famine animal protein in like mediation is and it's how they eat it it's how Saria's family would eat it um, just becomes crucial um, she never once in the interviews admitted to eating uh, beef it wasn't the point of the wasn't the point of the article. I was I was talking to her very soon after her son was killed. So it was all just a bit, it was all just a bit like I, you know, I wouldn't push for these kinds of answers. But um I do know that for a lot of communities that have food scarcity, animal protein, beef, dairy, um, becomes very, very crucial. So yeah. You mentioned the secrecy around ownership. I can't help but think that that secrecy around ownership yeah, obviously, everything within India has to do somehow is touched by the caste system. But I can't help but think that that uh, scarcity or that secrecy around ownership has something to do with that caste system, not wanting to reveal who the people are who own something because they're from a higher caste, potentially. Does the caste system contribute to food shortages in India? Yeah, very much. Food is um, in a Hindu, in a society built on 
the social code of Hinduism, food and caste, uh, you know, they're inseparable. Um, because Hinduism does kind of, um, it doesn't kind of, it, it definitely like, you know, it, it segments food into hierarchies of pure and impure and decides who deserves what. Um, I grew up in a dominant caste household. Uh, my family is, uh, you know, made up of migrants far from where we are um, from originally. So my parents are from the South, but for like five generations, we've been in the North of India, first in Pakistan. So essentially my family is very intermarried in with, you know, we're married across faith, not caste. We're married, like we have, we have Muslim um, families. So we were never told this kind of like big vegetarianism lie because I would eat meat from when I was a child. But I know a lot of dominant caste friends and, you know, other Indians are just told that, oh yeah, like everybody's vegetarian or, you know, this is what we deserve and this is what food is and this is what everybody eats. And dominant caste Hindus would eat in opulence. You'd eat, you'd eat, you'd eat five you know, like two kinds of uh, vegetables, one kind of dal or protein, and then dairy, and then wheat um, and grain. So essentially, your like dominant caste Hindus are entitled to the first flush of food, and then the rest of the rest of it just gets kind of cordoned off, depending on um, depending on you know who gets access to what. And with like people who are quote unquote the bottom of the food ladder, the oppressed caste communities, most of whom grow food and uh, work and raise cattle, you know, who work land traditionally before there was machines, which is fairly recent in India, they don't have equal access um, to food and they haven't. So their diets are made up of what dominant caste Hindus, specifically Brahmins, would leave behind, you know, so oftentimes beef and meat. Um, and, you know, I didn't know this before I started researching the article, which goes a lot to say about how much the kind of caste network works. Um, I mean, I, I sort of knew it, but I didn't know the depths of the depths of it. But a lot of like dominant caste communities, Brahmins, everybody used to eat uh, beef historically and then stopped for like political reasons, reasons that kind of um, connect to rule, like ruling other communities, including working communities. Um, so yeah, and even today, a lot of, um, this I couldn't include in the article, but even today, uh, you know, many, many dominant caste communities eat meat, but they're not the ones that are punished. Even today, when it's like, when meat sellers or um, meat eaters are punished, it's always from Muslim backgrounds and this political climate that, you know, is like a primary target for the regime and everybody that affiliates with it, which is a huge percentage of the country. And um and people from marginalized class backgrounds who have essentially who who are punished for a profession that they have been forced into, which is like ludicrous, you know, because they're not they've not been allowed to practice things other than leather tanning or raising cattle or the slaughtering of cows or like cleaning up after, um, you know, sort of like disposing old animals. Because in an agrarian economy, we had cattle to work land, and you know, the same communities that have been tasked with dealing with these things are the ones that are punished for eating meat, even though that's the only thing that they have been kind of ordained to eat historically. So, yeah. So you write that Cyrus' son, uh, Junaid, was uh, 16 years old when he, his older brother Hashim, and two friends were attacked on a train in Haryana in June of 2017. You quote Hashim uh, recounting that their attackers, quote, were older, larger, and Hindu. They kept calling us beef eaters, 
Whenever they said the word beef eater, they became more violent and coordinated in their attack. It was like the chant brought them together. During their argument, the men stabbed Junaid with a knife. They threw the boys out of a Saudi station where Junaid succumbed to his injuries from the assault and died. So you also mentioned that Junaid Khan's lynching is one of several incidents of its kind that have frequently occurred in India over the past decade. They are commonly referred to as cow-related violence, a subsection of crime in which those under suspicion of eating, selling, or transporting beef are searched, humiliated, mauled, and even killed for supposedly violating a cow, an animal which Hindus consider sacred. So is every Muslim always under suspicion of beef eating? Is there a sense that at any given time you may be determined to be or having participated in eating, selling, or transporting beef? Is is every Muslim, is this like the ace up the sleeve for people who are Hindus who are Islamic, uh, Islamophobic, that they can just always blame the person for being a beef eater and then be attacked? Yeah, I mean, I this sounds paranoid to say, but like it definitely is the case, you know, and um, I'd say working class Muslims, most definitely people, but you know, um, who, I mean, Muslims of um, like elite Muslims don't deal in the in the business of um selling selling meat but yeah definitely uh and there is i mean definitely there is a constant suspicion whenever there's a like for for indian muslims to be public in their work and to exist in society today is just a constant kind of like there's just constant threat now when i go out of my house i my i'm like always on on watch to see you know because i because i live in a really mixed what they call a mixed neighborhood. So there's like temples and uh, mosques all together. And like, you know, like just outside where I live, there's food carts, which some like there's, there's food carts run by Indian Muslims and there's food carts run, run by Hindus. And I'm just sort of like, I'm I'm like looking on my shoulder to see if like anything happens, if two boys get into a fight or I don't know. It's just like such a paranoid way to live, but it's definitely what's happening now. And um, so... You know, one thing that Junaid's family would tell me again and again was that he wasn't eating meat. He They kept saying that he just didn't, it wasn't beef. But they got into a tiff with these older um, Hindu men who were bullying them, basically, and they didn't bow down. And the boys were visibly Muslim because they were, they, they were just, they were coming back from mosque, from the, from the masjid, from, from the mosque, and they were wearing sort of attire that, you know, could signal to their identity as Indian Muslims and they started getting bullied by these older men and there was there, there's no evidence not that it warrants assault and death but there's no evidence in this case or even in other cases that the meat is beef um it's just a system of profiling that works against Indian Muslims very specific like very specifically I mean like really wealthy Indian Hindus wealthy Indians are eating like Japanese beef and all kinds of things in restaurants you know like it's not that's not the point of contention you know even though but this is um so essentially it's kind of like starving Indian Muslims of their livelihoods uh, disallowing them public space disallowing them the right to like travel publicly in the train right now and saying that okay who are you to be around in our country it belongs to us this is very much what's happening under the regime right now saying that this is a country for Hindus. It's what the 
uh, BJP and, you know, its affiliated RSS, which is extremely old, which is a party that's been around since India's independence. So this is all not very sudden. Believe that India is a country for Hindus, what they call a Hindu Rashtra. So very much today, this this community, this kind of Indian Hindu has magnified itself under the under the influence of the prime minister and because of a variety of reasons also because of like this kind of mass poverty and you know the kind of radicalization that is possible in in this sort of joblessness and economic um you know fall that is happening right now but um yeah definitely it is like it's just to be a public indian muslim is always um under like you're always under threat and beef eating is something that can be used because it's seen as a it's seen as what these guys you know what the regime and what people that affiliated would, would, would call being an anti-national so like a traitor to the indian identity of the indian cause and uh, when i was writing this piece i wanted to say that that's i mean it's just this is the myth that is driving fundamentalism this is also the myth that is most marketable to the rest of the world specifically americans um because like yoga is Hindu and, you know, like vegetarianism as like health is derives from Hinduism. So it just becomes this kind of like soft diplomacy in a way to to like detract from the fact that the same stuff that is quite merchandisable in the West is being used to make life hell here and no less. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that answers the no, question. No, you but... did. So do you think that this uh, electoral loss by the BJP in Karnataka state the, over the weekend, do you think that that is a sign that this kind of Hindu nationalism may be on its way out? Because you point out that these lynchings have really taken off over the last 10 years. This isn't what India was like, I'm certain, when you were growing up. So do you think that this electoral loss by the BJP over the weekend might signal uh, a change back to the India that you remember when Hindus and Muslims were getting along a lot better? Well, so basically, yeah, it's not like when I was growing up. And um, like I said, you know, I grew up in the capital, which is known for like it's multiculturalism and I grew up in a family that you know exists across faith and I grew up with friends across backgrounds and things like that and but Delhi is fairly cosmopolitan for the lack of a better word it's a terrible word but like it is but that's just that's just how it is but I do think that the these kind of like roots of this Islamophobia that is so present now I think they were sown and that's what I that's what I try to say in the article in the like way back you know in the 90s um with the demolition of the Babri Masjid, which is which is when Hindu rioters kind of brought this ancient mosque down uh, with their bare hands, it was, it's 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 horrific to watch. Like just the kind of energy that these boys are have been wound up with by people that are heading the country today. But just back then, all of this stuff was considered fringe. You know, it was considered like they were considered miscreants, or they were like this kind of stuff, which is considered like not the mainstream identity of the country. I do believe it was there though. So, um, but now it very much is the brand. Like this is like the ruling ideology is this. It is, it's terror, it's frightening. It's everyone that does not ally with this ideology is punished, whether it be, you know, dissenting Indian Hindus, um, Indian Muslims, just automatically people from marginalized castes. It's just as an Indian woman who, uh, if they, I've often gone out and people have asked me to show my allegiance to Hinduism by like wearing a bindi or doing something ridiculous. This just happens on the streets. It definitely wasn't happening um, before. Uh, for the win in Karnataka, you know, India is so big and I, I don't know. I live 
in also like I'm I'm fairly like rooted in the north and it's what we call the Hindi heartland, which is where like the strength of the ruling ideology right now comes from here. It comes from this part of the country. Um, and I'm I'm a bit naive with <laughs> like political uh, optimism, but I believe that it's going to be better. But but every time I articulate this, my friends and like other reporters are just like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. But I mean, it's definitely like, I am not going to deny that it made me feel hopeful. Um, every little thing you kind of like catch on to, you know, like it's just um, in this atmosphere, every little thing that is kind of was 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 quite natural to us. Um, it's just become this kind of like, wow, this still exists. I recently wrote a piece about Indian fandom for Pakistani music um, because we speak the same language and we are essentially the same, you know, uh, we have the same roots, North India, West India and Pakistan. And the whole piece, it was kind of like just trying to figure out how today something like listening to bands across the border, listening to, you know, our, like feeling camaraderie with our neighbors is such a big deal. But when I was growing up, it was no big deal. They'd come, they travel here. These bands I was writing about would play in Delhi. It was like, really not a big deal but I do think we're living in this in this time of like deep polarization even small or, or in the case of Karnataka like big um successes uh do count yeah I do think that it matters but I'm I know better than to be entirely hopeful because they do have a huge majority even now um a majority of thought that you know, didn't exist before. We are speaking with writer and editor Sharanya Deepak, who posted the Baffler magazine article, India's Beef with Beef, Vegetarianism as a Tool for Punishment and Surveillance. You write a 2019 report titled Violent Cow Protection in India, notes that between May 2015 and December 2018, at least 44 people were killed in such attacks. According to the report, the violence occurred across the country. The victims were largely Muslim, indigenous Adivasis or Dalits, members of India's most oppressed caste. So there was an article at The Economist in September of 2021 with the headline, India's caste system remains entrenched 75 years after independence, the absurdity and cost of affirmative action for the majority. That writing states Hindu texts speak of four tiers or varnas, uh, making up a broader caste pyramid in society. On top are the Brahmins or priestly caste, the Kshatriyas or warrior class, and the Vasyas or merchant class. At the bottom come the Shudras or laboring class. The rest do not even count outcasts. This would suggest this is only about religion, but that same article states the British Raj incorporated Varnas into its imperial system of rule, perpetuating the caste system. Do we know if this kind of religious antagonism existed prior to the British Raj? How much is this violence about the lingering legacy of colonialism? Is this violence between Hindus and Muslims a legacy of a kind of divide and conquer strategy of the British Empire? You know, so this is, and I've had to learn this from um, scholars and, uh, you know, writers that are not from dominant caste backgrounds, that like the caste system and the kind of evils of it, the pervasion of it did exist um, much before colonialism. It's basically what like Hindu society uh, founded itself on. And I mean, I'm, I'm, British colonialism definitely used it to their advantage. You know, when a society is creviced, in this way, it definitely becomes easier to rule. Um, 
And, but I do think that uh, like the kind of antagonism between um, Indians and, uh, sorry, Hindus and Muslims in India, I mean, it's not antagonism, it's because Hindus are a majority. It's like a sort of, um, you know, uh, denial to Indian Muslims of their rights. It, I mean, it, it did strengthen itself um, during British colonialism. There was a, you know, there was the, the divide and conquer strategy as it's famously known. Uh, they used it to their advantage. It did strengthen itself. The partition and the riots that, that ensued after, it was horrific, like, you know, but, and, but I don't, I mean, I'm not, like, this is not to absolve um, British colonialism of any, any blame, but I, I do think that at the moment, like to say that it, that it was all then would absolve us of the responsibility at the moment to dismantle it, and it's of utmost importance right now that today we it's it's really up to us um, right now. And caste is talked about by people that are not of dominant caste backgrounds, but for people who are and people that were raised in it, like me, we just thought that this kind of order was natural. You know, I was never I was never told that. I mean, my family is not does not embody any kind of supremacy. Just just by, I mean, thank God. But um, but even so, like nothing was, nothing was like this stuff, like the hierarchies and the way that we are in charge of them was not explained to me. So um, yeah, I mean, I there's there's evidence in the article as well that like long before the British ever arrived, um, ruling Brahmins, especially to strengthen land ownership, made all of these hierarchies up. Um, you know, to to keep land really really exclusive to them and keep food really exclusive to them. And this is, if you look closer, just very evident in diets. Um, like dominant caste communities would eat a lot of ghee, would, will eat a lot of dairy, will eat a lot of milk. And dairy is really expensive, you know? And like, I've always seen that it's kind of, just in like food discourse and food writing. And that's actually what got me start, started on this research where immediately it would be like, oh, an Indian staple. But like ghee is extremely, it's not easy to purchase. You wouldn't, you don't eat it for every meal. Um, even I, you know, like nobody would. And it's definitely a luxury. And it's a luxury because of the fact that dairy has been gatekept the way that it has, or like sugar has been, uh, sugar, I mean, unrefined sugar before, uh, refined sugar was gatekept very heavily. Like any kind of pleasure from food um, has existed for a very long time. Um, I don't think I'm super adept to answer the question about British colonialism and um, you know the division between Indian Muslims and Indian Hindus but I I would suppose that it it is it existed before but it definitely strengthened itself with colonialism and then with the partition of the countries and then following in the 90s it was just you know escalated because of this party known as the RSS the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh which is um now Kind of just controlling um, the people that rule us. Uh, yeah. And you write that in 2015, a 52-year-old Muslim man named Muhammad Akhlaq was dragged out of his house with his son and beaten to death by a mob on the suspicion of storing beef in his refrigerator. When he was killed, the Hindi language magazine, uh, Hindi language, uh, Language magazine published a piece in defense of his uh, killers. According to the article's author, seminal uh, Hindu scriptures order killing of the sinner who kills a cow. It's a matter of life and death for many Hindus, they write. Is that an accurate following of Hindu religious law? Does Hinduism fully endorse murdering people for killing a cow? 
No, it absolutely doesn't, you know, and um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not religious. So it's not like a pro-Hinduism um, thing. So, you know, but like, um, I mean, there's definitely no, I know that scholars would argue, uh, people that still practice a religion, that Hindutva is um, separate. Hindutva is the ruling ideology right now, which is essentially like right-wing weaponized Hinduism um, is separate from Hinduism. But the same scholars would argue that caste is also like a Hindutva product, but which I don't believe. I think caste is really integral to Hinduism. And that is, just like, when, you know, when supremacy is embedded inside something, um, I do think that there is violence in that, but the violence does not suggest um, murder. But what's happened now is that the scriptures have been weaponized to the point of, to the point of this, where it's just, this kind of natural order has been disrupted um, to these people, including the writer of this article and the people who conduct the lynchings and the regime that, you know, praises them. Um, so there is, so I, I feel like when there is a hierarchy that's kind of embedded in the religion, now it's essentially been used um, as social code. And, um, you know, at, I was prompted by my editor, uh, BD, who asked me to, trace the kind of lineage of this. And then I also, like, I write in the article, which is also, I mean, I knew about this, but just looking into it made it much clearer. But there's there's been, there's been like, Hinduism has traveled to the point to get here. Um, there's It has been weaponized before. Uh, you know, all of this is a tussle for rule and land. And uh, when India was ruled um, by Persianite kings who were of uh, Muslim backgrounds, you know, then there was a certain weaponization there to kind of like um, suggest that they were barbarians or meat eaters. And, you know, like there was some sort of resentment for Islam through then. And Hindutva really strengthens itself uh, through global Islamophobia, which is extremely rampant right now. So Hindutva would, you know, um, would ally itself with Israel, uh, would ally itself with Western Islamophobia. Would... So right now, in this moment in the world where... Um, Islamophobia is essentially like, you know, and like a like a mode of allyship for many ruling uh, governments. I think it really strengthens itself there, which is why I think Indian, the Indian government being, you know, violent to its citizens is never really caught. And now it is, but like for a very long time, it wasn't reported in the West at all. But like a thing, a, a tiny thing happens in Pakistan of similar nature you know, it would be all over the American news because it's in geopolitical interest to, you know, to to dissuade Americans against Pakistani humanity, but not the other way around. I mean, India is still a cultural product. There's still a market for the West. So the fact that this regime has the same tendencies as a dictator anywhere, that's not, um, that's not ever, for some reason, even now, like it's something that I have to explain to people who still... And the kind of soft, soft diplomacy or vegetarianism and everything else and these kind of cultural products of Hinduism. Are, I didn't realize how strong they were until I lived in Europe and I saw how the rest of the world thinks that, you know, just a bunch of like dancing fairies that all <laughs> live, live together every day. Um, yeah, sorry, I was a bit I diverted from your question. No, that's okay. I like when that happens. So you write that today, even as large communities across the subcontinent eat beef, most Brahmins remain vegetarian, a lifestyle they've tried to normalize as an unquestionable part of Indian national identity. 80% of India's population is Hindu, and 15% are Muslims. 
are Indians democratically choosing to be an increasingly Hindu nationalist state that is not welcoming to Muslims? Are, are Indians choosing to be Islamophobic? Well, you know, I think, I think no, again, like I'm not very equipped to answer this because the political landscape and like the demographic landscape that votes in the country is extremely diverse. You know, there's like all kinds of class margins and all kinds of reasons where people voted for this government. So, and they have a huge vote count amongst the urban poor and the rural poor. So to go ahead and say that all BJP voters are Islamophobic would be entirely inaccurate by me. Um, but the sort of like peddling of Islamophobia, especially to the, what we call the lower middle class, which is a, again, like just a really specific term, which is like one, the middle class is like, there's an upper middle class that is adjacent to the, to the rich, who is just the rich. And then there's the lower middle class that are kind of like working urban people. Um, you know, the, the, the BJP does this thing where it kind of peddles them Islamophobia by kind of using that situation of um, precarious living conditions or precarious income to say, oh, this is not your fault. It's because like Indian Muslims are taking away your jobs. And if they were gone, this would be a better country. Um, you know, there's a lot of evidence to show that this kind of free internet has created, a, you know, all kinds of like fake news channels. And there's a huge propaganda machine at work here. So, I mean, it's definitely not like people are, again, like to say people are brainwashed, just not, do not, would not give them agency, but it's also, there's a very clever kind of system going on because the RSS, which is adjacent to the BJP, which does most of this dirty work, um, you know, the, the government and the prime minister especially will kind of uh, strategically remove himself from that. And we'll talk about like the economy or um, something else that would persuade people to vote for him. So they have a really clever, really age old kind of thing going on. There's all these simultaneous systems going on. Um, so, no, I wouldn't say that everybody that votes for the BJP is, um, you know, is like terrible and Islamophobic, but there is, of course, it's a, I mean, the BJP vote uh, emboldens Islamophobia right now. So I also can't go ahead and say that they're entirely absolved um, of, of any kind of, you know, agency to what we're going through. Um, the, and this... But what I feel like liberal Indians like to say is that it's it's most people that do, like lack an education that vote for the BJP, but that's also not true. Uh, very wealthy, educated people um, happen to advocate for this country. So yeah, for them, I have no words. You know, like it's it it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, yeah. And you write how Zahir Jean Muhammad, an Indian-American writer and former host of Racist Sandwich, a podcast about food and politics, which is a great name for a podcast about food and politics. And uh, you quote him saying, it's like Indian Muslims don't have agency to claim a linguistic, regional and culinary identity. In the diaspora, Hinduism, vegetarianism and Indianism go hand in hand. So I live in a very uh, South Asian neighborhood. My neighbor, the neighborhood right outside the door here is actually the uh, most diverse, ethnically diverse uh, census tract in the United States. And we have a lot of Indians and Pakistanis who live in the neighborhood. And there are at least 100 Indian or Pakistani restaurants along the stretch of street right outside the studio. Uh, and a lot of the signs say, 
authentic vegetarian Indian cuisine. Is authentic vegetarian Indian cuisine authentic? How does an outsider's view of Indian authenticity affect the internal politics of India? Yeah, so, you know, honestly, I had a pretty, I had I had a long conversation with Zaheed that I couldn't, um, for the sake of word count, I couldn't use. And with an anthropologist, an Indian American um, scholar, his name is Gautam Reddy, who was the first, you know, I approached them because I saw this excerpt in the Mindy Kaling of like, of Mindy Kaling cooking with, um, uh, you know, Kamala Harris before she was uh, elected. And it was this, I don't know, it was just something kind of insipid where it was like they were they were like making a dosa in prime time somewhere, something. And um, you know, she Mindy Kaling goes ahead to say something like, Oh, and you know, all the food when I went back home to India or when I went to my relatives, and the food was vegetarian, obviously. And I was like, What? That makes no sense. And then the more I kind of looked into the Indian American diaspora, the elite Indian American diaspora, vegetarianism became something of a sort of like you know, like a like a cute thing, like something to to look back to, and like I felt a bit vicious uh, being angry with this stuff because I was like, okay, that's just how cultures work, work in diaspora. You know, like things are presented uh, through nostalgia; it makes sense and everything. But the same stuff that is marketed as something that is kind of harmless and sweet and an antidote to American meat eating, the same thing here is is a tool of oppression and you know, murder. So that kind of, I, I was just like, why are they telling people this? Why is this happening? And these people wield this huge amount of influence. And um, I talked to Zaheer before regarding his podcast, I'd interviewed them um, for something. And, you know, he's an Indian Muslim. He lived, he lived in Gujarat during the Gujarat um, anti-Muslim riots, which were under the present prime minister's watch. Um, I get into great trouble for saying all this on air, but anyway. Um, uh, you know, and he saw a lot of what happened to his community firsthand, and it's horrific. Like thousands of people were killed. Um, and he's and he's written about this. And there's a really good article that I think everyone should read called it's called I think it's called Eating Butter Chicken in Ahmedabad, or you know, and uh, Ahmedabad is which is the just Gujarat, which is where the government is the the prime minister and the home minister from advocates itself for its vegetarianism and its purity. And anyway, so um. Yeah, I do. I don't think that vegetarianism is like in. So, of course, there are Indian vegetarian communities and families. So, if they had to go and be like, oh, this is what we eat at home, yeah, it's authentic to their experience. But there's data now that shows that only 19, I don't know, like 85%, and I've quoted it in the piece and I've read it like a million times, but I forgot it. Um, but 85% of India eats meat. So, it would just be inauthentic to the ideal of the country. And but I think it works, you know, it works in the diaspora, it works in the American market where like because there's all of this stuff about like turmeric and ghee and all this stuff about India being like this kind of wellness center, which is all just kind of I mean it's a bit be it's far from the truth, but it's also just really it's really like how can it be true? Like I don't know who's believing this. Um but it works, it works like geopolitically, it just works. It works for the US, it works for capitalism, it works for like markets it works for it works for this regime definitely um so yeah i wouldn't no it's not authentic to say that india like india is vegetarian but of course there are communities that are but there's they're a very tiny minority um and it happens all the time there was like another bon appetit video where 
again, it's like, oh, all of India is vegetarian. And, you know, someone just nods and agrees. And I was just kind of flummoxed at all this. I was like, this is, I mean, why is it so far from the truth? But then there's so many things about India that are so far from the truth. Um, and not just the grim stuff. It just kind of dilutes the country into this sort of merchandisable, sweet, um, you know, pretty place that people should visit and like approach in a certain way without really taking into account what we're living through, which is to me a bit unfair um, because this needs to go, you know, <laughs> like it just needs to stop. I am sick of it. And I think everybody that lives here and grew up here and we thought we'd have better lives in our country is, is sick of it. So whatever makes it go, um, it all needs to, it needs to end at some point. And you write that the public declaration of the right to eat beef has taken many forms in the last decade, one of which is the formation of beef festivals. These festivals have been organized across India by students' associations, particularly those headed and formed by students from the Dalit caste. In 2012, for example, Dalit students at Osmania University in Hyderabad organized the university's first beef festival, challenging the Brahmanical lens through which which food is usually viewed. So in India, is eating beef increasingly a revolutionary act by the oppressed and the poor? Is it a revolutionary act against inequality? Is it a revolutionary act challenging the caste system? Well, you know, the poor and, I mean, historically marginalized caste people have been ordained, like I said, like they didn't have a choice. So, you know, they were not doing it as defiance. Um, I mean, in my knowledge, it was it was literally what was left to eat and to keep vegetables and to keep dairy from people. It's just, you know, it's brutal. It's horrible. I mean, it's it happens now in like in Britain under bad, bad food costs and, you know, like just vegetables and nutrition being scarce. It's just awful. Um, but this the beef festivals and everything happened. Those recently uh, happened in defiance of laws that tried to ban beef. And um, much before I wrote this article, much before anybody knew anything about this stuff, Dalit communities and people from marginalized caste backgrounds, activists, nutritionists, writers, um, the architect of the constitution, Dr. Ambedkar, have fought against these biases. You know, it's been it's been happening. It's been happening for a long time. Um, but, you know, like Dr. Gogu Shamala, who's a writer I interviewed for this, who writes in Telugu and who's fantastic. Uh, she told me not to glamorize beef eating. She's a, she's a Dalit writer and she said, you know, like you're from a dominant caste background, so don't glamorize it by saying that, oh yeah, this is all we eat and this is like constant resistance. And she's like, many Dalit people will choose to be um, vegetarian because to resist what's been ordained on them by a kind of brutal hierarchical system. So there are a variety of choices that people from marginalized caste will make to defy and resist the system that's been imposed on them. Um, but in this atmosphere of the beef pans, it did become a political act um, that was organized. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's mad. I, I realized this right now when I went to a government canteen, I was in the center, I was doing some work. And I went to like um, what we call a bhavan, which is essentially like a government office and the food's quite good. Um, you know, it's like each state has its own, has its own, um, has its own office because it's the capital. So I went to eat in one of them and it was Tuesday. So they wouldn't serve they wouldn't serve meat. And Tuesday is like an auspicious day for some Hindus. And to me, it was just like, it was just like, when did this start happening? It wasn't happening before. Or there'd be instances that on airplanes, they'd be like, oh yeah, we don't serve. On like state-owned airlines, they wouldn't serve, they wouldn't serve meat, even chicken or like mutton or goat or whatever. So 
Yeah, but I wouldn't. So, you know, like there is a variety of ways that this resistance kind of takes place against the hierarchies. I'm not equipped to answer them because I'm not from the communities, but they have been in so many ways fighting for their right to eat with joy. And, um, you know, there's a lot of work that talks about it. Dr. Shamla is excellent. There's um, there's this artist, his name is Rajeshri Goody, who uses um, the right to eating with delight and eating whatever they want with joy you know, as defiance against Brahminical food culture. So, um, yeah, it's not just, it's not just beef eating, you know, even resisting uh, beef eating is a way, which I didn't count because I cannot know. It's not my experience. So um, I would recommend to listeners to look these people up. We are amazing. We are speaking, we, we have been speaking with writer and editor Sharanya Deepak, who posted the Baffler magazine article, India's Beef with Beef, Vegetarianism as a Tool for Punishment and Surveillance. She's currently working on a book of essays. You can find out more about Sharanya at sharanyadeepak.com. And follow Sharanya on Twitter at Sharanya Deepak. One last question for you, Sharanya, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or audience is going to hate your response. You write that in 2021, a Muslim biryani vendor in Delhi was forced by Hindu right-wingers into closing his stall after selling meat during the Hindu festival Diwali. In March 2022, a 26-year-old Muslim man in Tripura was lynched by a mob for the alleged theft of cattle. The following August, the relative of a man accused in a cow slaughter case in Muzaffargarh, Uttar Pradesh, was tortured by the police. Two months later, another Muslim biryani vendor's food cart was vandalized and forced to close in Uttar Pradesh as well. After he was accused of selling beef at a Hindu festival, this despite the meat being soya, a vegetarian meat substitute. So even vegetarian meat substitutes trigger attacks from Hindu nationalists. The White House announced on Thursday that Prime Minister Modi will be visiting Washington, D.C. in June to meet with President Biden. The White House statement of the media of the meeting reads like this. President Joe Biden, First Lady Jill Biden, will host Prime Minister Narendra Modi of the Republic of India for an official state visit to the United States, which will include a state dinner on June 22, 2023. The upcoming visit will affirm the deep and close partnership between the United States and India and the warm bonds of family and friendship that link Americans and Indians together. The visit will strengthen our two countries' shared commitment to a free, open, prosperous, and secure Indo-Pacific, and our shared resolve to elevate our strategic technology partnership, including in defense, clean energy, and space. The leaders will discuss ways to further expand our educational exchanges and people-to-people ties, as well as our work together to confront common challenges from climate change to workforce development and health security. So, my question from hell for you is, is the U.S. complicit, in your opinion, in the anti-Muslim violence that is, at the very least, encouraged by the BJP? Is any nation that does not criticize the BJP, in this case the Biden administration, complicit in its continued anti-Muslim violence and discriminatory anti-poor caste system? Is the U.S. complicit in the Modi regime? I mean, yeah, yeah, yes, that was that's that's really easy. I mean, as the global superpower and everybody like the you know the 
producer in charge of our markets and all the seeds we grow and everything we watch. And I, yes, I would believe that there is a certain responsibility um, with the American government. Um, I'm quite cynical about the American government. I mean, I'm not going to apologize for it. But um, even when Biden was elected, I was like, yeah, you know, like, wait, I mean, there was, this is, it is to me, there is like strategic Islamophobia works to the favor of capital-driven, uh, you know, rulers in America. So I do think that there is, of course, there's a there's a responsibility to think about the largest. I mean, we are going to be the most populated country in the world, in the world, you know. And there's this kind of bias is going to reach everywhere. It already has. Um, in in Britain, you know, this year there was uh, communal violence. Um, in Leicester, which is fairly known for like for South Asian solidarity. I mean, it's definitely happening in America. Um, often uh, caste-based discrimination happens in like in, in California and in tech, tech offices. Um, yes, so very much I do think that the U.S. is complicit and has a responsibility because the U.S. profits from the rest of the world. So there is, you know, there's a reason to think about this stuff. But I, I don't know. I don't think it'll happen. Not in this meeting. It's with like people to people days or whatever they're thinking about. But um, yes, that's, it's a hard yes. So Sharanya, thank you very much for being on our show. Writer and editor Sharanya Deepak. Post of the Baffler Magazine article again, India's beef with beef, vegetarianism as a tool for punishment and surveillance. She is currently working on a book of essays and you can find out more about her at SharanyaDeepak.com and follow Sharanya on Twitter at Sharanya Deepak. Thank you so much for being on our show. This really is a fascinating article and everybody who is listening right now should check out her writing at The Baffler. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. This is not the media. This is hell. And you know this is not the media because there's no way in hell the public or private form of corporate media will allow a conversation for over 40 minutes almost 50 minutes about deadly religious oriented Indian nationalism when both of the major U.S. political parties welcome that government's leadership into the White House and Capitol building with bipartisan open arms next month as they did during the Trump administration before it as they did during the Obama administration as they did during the Bush administration bipartisan tolerance for Hindu nationalism violent Hindu nationalism that's the bipartisanism CNN wants. If the talk we just had with Sharanya is a reminder that cannot and you will not hear that kind of discussion anywhere else, show your appreciation for This Is Hell providing nearly 27 years of content that you could not and cannot get anywhere else, giving airtime to opinions and perspectives you cannot hear anywhere else and providing that content to you absolutely free, including nearly 10 years of shows right now at thisishell.com. Please show your appreciation for all of that and that it's always been free by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time and his podcast shortly after at the same place. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. So on our most recent Thursday, May 11th Patreon podcast, I cannot stop thinking about our conversation from a week ago today with Ashley Dawson on the book he co-edited 
co-edited, Decolonize Conservation, which is a collection of essays by those suffering from the conservationist colonization and colonialism process, a process I've only recently recognized myself, thanks to listener Derek B., who brought it to my attention on social media. Hat tip to Derek. And Derek, I hope to see you and your better half again at our annual listener appreciation party and uh, anniversary party that's coming up. And the art show as well. This is heart. This is heart. This is art, which is uh, happening on Saturday, July 22nd, downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. In Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, beginning at around 3 p.m. Recognizing conservation as a form of colonialism made me realize that there are probably all sorts of ways in which colonialism rears its ugly head on a daily basis, if not hour by hour or even second by second, that is, if we care to notice. But the worst part is the many ways in which I have hitherto, yes, I said hitherto, unknowingly participated in colonialism, reproducing it whether I realized I was doing so or not. And who knows? Maybe you're like me and an unwitting proponent of the exploitation and removal of others. Also on Patreon, every week we share a classic interview from our archives, a conversation that currently is not available anywhere else online but on Patreon. And all of our Patreon monologues and shows and podcasts, they're all searchable. So you can put in, say, Noam Chomsky and find our seven interviews that we've done with Noam Chomsky on the show. And as we have nearly 10 years of interviews at our website, thisishell.com, right now for free, You can bet the discussions we share on Patreon are, that's right, at least 10 years old. In fact, last week's featured interview was 20 years and one day old and originally aired on May 10th, 2003. Two weeks prior to when that conversation actually occurred, we had spoken with Colette Mollert of the Belgian organization Medicine for the Third World, which at the time was charging U.S. General Tommy Franks with war crimes. So we shared that interview on Patreon near its 20th anniversary as well a couple of weeks ago. However, that conversation was only 11 minutes long and in fact was not the conversation we wanted to share on Patreon. So just as we did 20 years ago, we had a second interview on the topic of General Frank's war crimes charges, which nobody was discussing back here in the States less than a month after the war started. That's how quickly possible war crimes were being conducted in the Iraq war or how quickly they occur in any war for that matter. It doesn't take much time for war crimes to start once a war starts. And often, the war itself is the crime. So we followed up our far too brief talk with Colette by speaking with attorney Jan Ferman, who was a lawyer in Belgium representing Iraqi civilians and was preparing a complaint accusing US General Tommy Franks of war crimes. And we played that interview from 20 years ago on Patreon last week on Thursday. But you can only hear that how colonialism exists in our everyday lives and how you, like me, may be perpetuating it. Plus a 20-year-old talk on a U.S. general possibly committing war crimes less than a month into the war on Iraq. You can only hear all of that by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do, you get immediate access to more than five years of Patreon podcasts as well as a special code word that gives you a $5 discount on all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from Hell is why is this hell 
And on Patreon, we have a number of answers. First coming from Public Universal Comrade, nah. because of all that stinky arse capitalism. Uh, Jeff Dorchin reports, uh, desires cannot be satisfied, change is inevitable, everything falls apart, and it's it's too cold in here, and this damn soup is too salty. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> Hope to hear more about that later in the <laughs> week, Jeff. Salty soup. Um, Nate the Great says, all places shall be hell that are not heaven. Hmm. Uh, er- Erica X says, other people. Dan K says... You've got something better to do. <laughs> EW says, because you can't tax heaven. <laughs> okay. Chris F says, I don't know for sure, but I know the French have a lot to do with it. <laughs> All right. Paul F says, wait, this? Oh, hell, we ain't seen nothing yet. All right. Andrew says, well, there's no, this is hell bong in the merch store. It's the itch which could yet be scratched. We've actually had this suggested to people on several occasions. Why do you not have a this is hell bong? And there's a couple of reasons. One, plastic bongs suck. And two, those are the only ones that will make it to your home in the mail, (laughs) not broken. I have tried to order a bong online in the past. I have never received a bong, a glass bong in the mail that wasn't broken. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, that's just not going to happen. Sorry. Old Grouch says, Capitalism. Okay, maybe the girl that dumped me 55 years ago, <laughs> she still has the ring. Oh, wow. Oh, man, poor old Ouch. Grouch. Ouch. And then, uh, last but not least, Jamie K says, The Politics of Fear. All right. That's a good one. Yeah. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question, Mel, wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. We'll have more of your answers to the question from Hell later this week. And now, the past inside the present with Dr. Sebastian Vupper, who has a PhD in history and gives us the historical context from the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present. Take it away, Sebastian. The past inside the present. Some of you may recall when I talked about the practice and discipline of history and the whole issue of what us historians refer to as presentism. You know, that thing where we take our positions from today and project them back into the past as if the people from our past were basically identical to us as we are today. And that usually goes against how, you know, people in the past actually thought and acted. There are some pretty insidious ways to employ presentism, and that usually happens when some people try to appropriate past figures for their political needs in the present. One prominent example of this is the whole counterfactual idea that the United States was explicitly founded as a Christian nation, and that the so-called founding fathers were all deeply, fanatically religious. You know, because deeply fanatically religious Americans today need these founding fathers to have been just the way they are today in order to be right, in order to have the best claim on this here country, which is all very presentists as a notion. 
the generation of the founders, especially the people of the social class of Washington, Jefferson, and so on, even if they had been religious, would not have been religious in the same way that people are today. They would have perceived religiosity differently because, you know, almost 250 years have passed since, and not even the eternal Roman Catholic Church can prevent itself from changing drastically over such a long time span. And then we can, of course, ask whether that even matters, under what circumstances this would matter. The Establishment Clause of the Constitution, you know, that hallowed, infallible, but also hella effing vague piece of paper that tells us what we can and cannot do in this country, this Establishment Clause very clearly and in a very concise, did I stutter way, says that church and state should be separated. Because politics has no place in religion and religion no place in politics. So... If that's what the founders thought, then why, pray tell, pun intended, would it matter in the least whether or not the people who wrote this political piece of rules governing us all were themselves religious and private? They did not want the church piece touching the politics porridge, so who cares? That's, by the way, why these debates should make you suspicious of the motives of anyone arguing for the United States being a quote-unquote Christian nation, and that the founders were these high and mighty people who spent a whole lot of time on their knees in prayer. Because that's what these people today want the people from the past to have been like. Historical records and facts be damned. Granted, it doesn't help that evangelicals have almost from the get-go appropriated especially George Washington. So legend has it that while the Continental Army was in winter camp at Valley Forge, a Quaker by the name of Isaac Potts allegedly, again, encountered General Washington in the woods on his knees, tears running down his face, saying, Sir, sir. We're going to have the most tremendous country in the world. All the people are saying it. If only we can have this victory. Wait, I'm I'm getting my wires crossed here. Anyway, uh, so this Potts guy supposedly stumbled upon a desperately praying Washington, ran home to his wife to tell her about it, and that's how we know about this incident today. Only problem is that Potts didn't get married until 20 years later. And then the story was also popularized by evangelical bookseller Parson Weems, which is not just a great name, but I don't know. Uh, anyway, Weems in his biography of Washington that also contained other Washington hits, like the whole thing where Boy George, uh, okay, that's coming across badly, <clears throat> where Kid Washington at six years old supposedly chopped down his daddy's favorite cherry, cherry tree and then went, Father, I cannot tell a lie, not me. It is I who felled them there, cherry tree, with my little hatchet, see? Um, that's, that's poetic license, um, or some such that, that Washington apocryphal, uh, never appeared. So the apocryphal about the cherry tree never appeared anywhere before the biography's publication in 1806. So go figure about the veracity of this whole thing with the general George deep in prayer in the woods. Uh, now there can be an argument about whether these apocryphal stories are necessarily bad, after all, generations of Americans were inspired by the myth-making that surrounds the founding generation. Inspired to be supposedly better people, I guess, better Americans and so forth. But the problem is that as historians, we have an obligation to fact, not to myth-making and fables with educational value. 
if people today want to use these apocryphal tales to justify their Christo-fascist supremacy, when the people, when when these people then use the the tales and apocryphal, you know, hints as gospel pun again intended, treat them as historical facts. We are having a problem, and that's when us historians have to enter the stage and do our best Scrooge impression and loudly procla- proclaim, "Bah, humbug." Because this then becomes more than the harmless making of heritage uh, out of history, which, well, making heritage out of history is never quite as harmless as people peddling it want you to believe in the first place, but that's another story. So what about it? How religious was the historical general and president George Washington, really? How religious were the founders? But actually, what does the historical record, not the hagiographies, not the civil religion of the country, what does the actual history say about this? Problematic fave Thomas Jefferson wrote about Washington in his diary a year after Washington's passing that General George, quote, never on any occasion said a word to the public which showed a belief in the Christian religion, unquote. So that doesn't seem too high on a list of things for old GW to care about. Sure, as a young man, we can see on the historical record that Washington belonged to two Anglican churches in Virginia, well, one after the other because they moved around, Um, and also that he would attend church about once a month. Later in life, this attendance record improved where he would go to church almost every week, but as Jefferson said, he didn't talk much about it. And he was known to also later in life not partake in communion. For Washington, religion was a very private matter that he did not think other people should care much about, which is one of the reasons why we don't know uh, the reasons for Washington barely partaking in communion later in life. But also doing this, not partaking in communion during church services was actually not that special a thing at the time. Like, as I said, religiosity was practiced differently and perceived of differently in the past. In all surviving correspondence on the historical record, Washington talks about Jesus Christ only once explicitly. However, he did talk about God or the idea of God frequently. He also had good knowledge of the Bible, which he quoted and alluded to frequently. Washington often talked about the utility of religion and moral virtue for public life. And this might seem like a contradiction, but basically this was about religion being an aid to maintaining order in society while leaving every individual person to believe and practice whatever they felt like. But still, he was very cagey about his own beliefs and where he located himself within Christianity. He was so private, in fact, that even at his deathbed, there were very, very few religious elements elements present. In any case, Washington was not the zealously religious Bible thumper Christian nationalists want him to have been. However, he was also not an atheist because, well, very few people at the time actually were. The way that someone like him perceived off and practiced religion would have been very different from the ways people understood and perceive of religion, religious practice today, as I said. But what about other founders? So Thomas Jefferson was, by all accounts, a deist, following a popular Enlightenment idea of Christianity that held the belief that God made the world and then basically just peaced out. This is often referred to as the watchmaker model, where the divine created the universe, made it run, and never touched it again after, and also did not really care about or respond to any 
prayers from believers when believers prayed for intervention. Alexander Hamilton was similar to Washington in that he was very private about his beliefs and only really discovered them again in old age. And also, Hamilton sought to instrumentalize religion in opposition to Jefferson, whom he thought an atheist, who had mingled, Jefferson had mingled too much with the godless philosophers of France, in uh, Hamilton's opinion. Hamilton, in many ways, seems more modern here, for he sought to use religion as a tool against his political opponent. However, for Hamilton, as for many of his contemporaries of the Enlightenment, organized religion smacked of superstition. He did not belong to any denominational church himself. He was, however, a believer in his later life, prayed frequently, and left copious notes in the margins of the family Bible. But, as Ron Chernoff notes in his famous Hamilton uh, biography, Hamilton sought proof and evidence for the various elements of Christian belief, not miracles. Washington, on the other hand, believed in miracles and believed that he himself was subject of several miracles that providence uh, provided, so basically that God provided when sparing him, for example, when his horse got shot out from him in battle. So what is the takeaway here? Well, for the most part, we can say that uh, that the United States was very much not founded as a Christian nation, even if the founders themselves held Christian religious belief. And both of these things are important. The founders were not atheists, not even Thomas Jefferson, who was accused of that during his lifetime. So this year, agnostic historian won't be able to claim that people who created this country would have necessarily been on his side, well, on my side, because interpreting the founders as such would be factually wrong and a back projection of my own belief system that is informed by the present back onto the past. But the same thing is true of modern-day religious zealots who want to claim the founders for themselves. The historical record does not bear this out. None of them were nearly as rapidly religious as many of today's Christian nationalists are. And given that the Constitution clearly establishes a separation of church and state, the founders would very likely be appalled by the current trend of trying to legislate using the Bible as a direct blueprint. And so, as usual, truth evades simplicity. And as usual, don't believe anyone who tries to tell you their simple answers to complex questions. The devil, hell even, is in the details. So, Seb, have you seen the Revolutionary War propaganda film by Mel Gibson called The Patriot? No, I have not. Well, don't. Also, (laughs) there's a Steven Seagal movie with the same name. Avoid that, too. I think any movie with the title The Patriot, you should probably avoid. But Eh. there is a scene in The Patriot, the one with Mel Gibson, where he sees a woman sitting on the bank of a river, and he asks her, mind if I join you? To which she responds, why not? It's a free country, or at least it will be. Ah. Yeah, Oscar-winning script right there. (laughs) I'm telling you, that movie is real. I think I'd rather watch the Steven Seagal movie, The Patriot, than watch that Mel Gibson movie again. It is outstandingly, hilariously done as a propaganda film, and it's really really worth it. If you ever are stoned and it's three in the morning, (laughs) and you're flipping channels for whatever reason, you stumble across it, watch it for five minutes, and then never watch any more of it. Mm, 
Yeah, it's it's also like five hours long, I think. <laughs> I think it is. Actually, it might be eight minutes long, but it feels like five <laughs> hours. Sebastian, I will speak with you soon. Thank you very much again, and great All to right. hear your voice. Yeah, Take always care. good to be here. Bye. Thanks, Sebastian. Will, who is our next guest here on This Is Hell? Returning to the show are Claire Provost and Matt Kennard, co-authors of Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy. Claire is co-founder and co-director of the new nonprofit Institute for Journalism and Social Change. Matt is the author of two acclaimed books, 2012's Irregular Army and The Racket from 2015, both of which we discussed on air with Matt. And who's our guest on Wednesday? Also returning to This Is Hell is historian Gabriel Winant, who will discuss his new N Plus One article, J.D. Vance Changes the Subject, a Senator from the Unconscious. This article is it's a great title. Amazing. It really is great. Every you got to read this. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Gabriel was on the show in July 2021 to discuss his then just published book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in the Rust Belt. Also coming up later this week, we will have This Week in Rotten History. We will reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which streams, which doesn't, which goes live on Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. at patreon.com slash thisishell. We will also hear a singular moment of truth from Jeff Dorch. And Will, what is Jeff talking about this week? Jeff foils junk hunters and their inquisition. <laughs> All right. I didn't know they were involved in an inquisition. Yeah. I thought they were just flipping Whoops. And we'll announce the winner of this week's question from hell. The winner gets their choice of This Is Hell merchandise absolutely free. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And we will be revealing next week's guests as well. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing. Most of all, thank you for listening. Thanks to Sebastian Vupper for another Past Inside the Present. Keep in mind... A lot of the questions I asked were written while I was high. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.